Good morning to all my Baptist sisters and brothers. I bring you greetings from Westminster College up the road in Fulton, where it is my privilege and responsibility to serve as a professor. I'm looking around the congregation and I'm seeing some familiar faces, and I take that to be very flattering because you knew I was going to be here and you came anyway. (laughs) Thank you very much for that. I'm going to base my comments this morning on a familiar story. It's the story of Zacchaeus, and we find it uniquely in the Gospel according to Luke. So I'm going to start by reading that story to you. Now, it's familiar, but don't let the familiarity that you have with the story kind of turn you off to some of the details, because the details of that story are very, very important. And the story goes like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and very rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, Jesus has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. May God grant to our understanding and to our intended heeding this, the reading from Luke. Amen. I'm a Presbyterian. But I'm a teacher. I'm not a preacher. You have a great preacher here. I listen to him when I teach some Sunday school classes and special sessions here. And so I'm not going to stand behind the pulpit where it's safe and preacher-like. I'm going to stand out here with you. I find this helps me with my students at Westminster College because it's harder for them to go to sleep when I'm standing right beside them at their seats. (laughs) So no sleep for you this morning. The phone call came during my senior year. The phone call came late at night. It came from Pastor Dawn, pastor of a Presbyterian church. And he said to me, Cliff Kane, it's Pastor Dawn from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in East Orange, New Jersey, I need you. 
What do you need me for? He said, I'm sick. I'm sicker than a dog. I need you to guest preach for me tomorrow morning. Can you do it? Will you do it? There's nobody else to do it. I pray you'll do it. I said, I'll do it. So the next morning, I got into my little Volkswagen Beetle. Some of you will remember those. And I zipped up the road from Princeton toward the Oranges in New Jersey. And I arrived at the church. Of course, since it was Presbyterian, I had to have a pulpit robe with me, right? You know, God's chosen frozen. And so I was at the back of the church. And I found it strange that nobody greeted me. I mean, when I came to First Baptist this morning, lots of people greeted me. Jim sought me out and said, I'm pleased you're here. Keep it short. <laughs> Several others of you said, oh, I remember when you taught the Holocaust class and the, the, the learning and retirement group here in, in town, or I was with you during January and we talked about how Christians need to understand and respond to world religions. You're friendly here. Nobody met me at the back of the church. And I thought, well, I'm here and I'm going to do it. So I walked down the aisle and I took my seat up at the front and waited for the service to begin. A couple minutes went by. I saw somebody else at the back of the church in a pulpit robe who walked down the aisle, came up to me and said, Who are you? I said, I'm Cliff Kane. I'm a student at Princeton, and the pastor is sick, and I'm here to pinch hit, and he said, I'm not sick, and I'm the pastor. I said, well, isn't this Westminster Presbyterian Church in East Orange, New Jersey? He said, no, this is Eastminster Presbyterian Church in West Orange, New Jersey. You're in the wrong church. So I stood up and I said, gotta go. <laughs> and I drove across town to the other Presbyterian church just as they were finishing the opening hymn. I'm sure much to the relief of the lay person who was in charge that day. And I preached the sermon in the absence of the sick pastor. What have we just done? We've listened to a story, right? A story from my life, and depending on your reaction to it, it might just become a part of your life's story as well. You see, life is filled with stories. There is this kind of narrative quality to our lives. It happens all the time. We get together, especially my family at Thanksgiving time, the extended Cain family, and what do we do when we get together? We tell stories. Some of them at my expense, but we tell stories. Do you remember when? Or I recall when that happened. Or there is this story quality to our life's story. The Bible is also a book of stories. And my students ask me, well, Professor Cain, what is the Hebrew Bible? What is the Old Testament? And I say, it's a story. It's a story of the faith journey of the people of Israel. 
It is a story that's filled to overflowing with other stories. Think about it. The story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the story of David. And each one of those stories is filled with more stories. The story of David and Goliath. The X-rated story of David and Bathsheba. The sad story of David and his son Absalom. You see, there is this narrative quality also to those sacred texts that we call the Bible. And what's the New Testament? But a series of stories, right? A series of stories about Jesus and the early church. All those wonderful stories. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is chock full of individual stories as well. And we bumped into one of those important stories just a few minutes ago. The story of Zacchaeus. Where did Zacchaeus live? Where did the Zac man live but in Jericho? Jericho. Jericho that you find as the hills of Jerusalem, Yerashalem, the city of peace, Jerusalem, as those hills begin to move down to the plain, you find Jericho. The oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. 10,000 years old. The excavations there have uncovered a watchtower and part of the wall, and the walls came tumbling. That's Jericho. That's where Zacchaeus lived. What did he do? Was he a professor at Westminster College? No. Was he a local coach? Was he a banker, an accountant? No. He's a tax collector. A dirty, rotten, stinking tax collector, I tell you. When I was in college in the fraternity, we had to say at one point, I am lower than the lowest worm. I am worse than torn underwear. I'm a pledge. <laughs> Zacchaeus could have said that. I'm lower than the lowest worm. I'm worse than torn underwear. I'm a tax collector. Why? Because the Roman military machine needed money to run its operation. And please understand that in Jesus' time, the Roman Empire was that political body that ruled that part of the world. And Israel, Palestine, was simply a small little backwater region that Rome hardly even knew about. So it didn't send its best kind of governors there. P.S. Pontius Pilate was a jerk. He ruled so badly after 10 years, they brought him back to Rome in disgrace. But every person who lived throughout the empire had to pay taxes to feed the Roman government, and in particular, to feed a Roman occupying military force. So they gathered Jewish folks who were willing to do that, to get taxes from their fellow country persons not very patriotic if you ask me, and send those monies back to Rome. How did the tax collector get paid? 
an extra charge, you see, onto the people who paid taxes. So tax collectors were generally corrupt. They were unpatriotic. If you read the literature of the time, they were placed in a category with robbers, cutthroats, prostitutes, ready for this, and shepherds. Boy, when Jesus tells the parable of the good shepherd or uses language about, I am the good shepherd, the hairs on the backs of people's necks must have gone straight up because shepherds weren't good. Everybody knew that shepherds were corrupt. And in that category of undesirables, of people pushed to the edge, of people looked down upon, of people not respected, were the tax collectors. And Zacchaeus was not only any tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. That meant he was rich. He had shekels to burn. But he also must have been terribly, incredibly lonely. Can you imagine a Jew who, in a sense, sold out his country persons to the Romans? That's worse than a Kansas fan in Columbia, I tell you. <laughs> so he must have been lonely. He was certainly discriminated against, certainly held in low regard, but he knew somebody was coming to town, somebody who seemed to reach out to everybody, somebody whose love knew no barriers, encountered no boundaries. A certain rabbi from up north, not down in Judea, but up north in the Galilee, a certain fellow named Jesus of Nazareth. Somebody who already had a tax collector among his most intimate circle of disciples. Can you believe that one? Had a few of those rascal zealots around him. Those kind of political subversives, you know. We even use the word today, zealous. The zealots wanted to overthrow the Roman military machine and if necessary, do it by violence. Jesus also welcomed women. Second-class citizens in the ancient world. Pieces of property, I tell you, based on law. When you were married, you became the property of your husband. If your husband preceded you in death, you became the property of your eldest son. And by property, I mean legal property. You're able to do Dispose of that person like you would dispose of a donkey, a house, farmland, whatever. And Jesus welcomed women into his entourage. Maybe Jesus might reach out to yet another undesirable, another tax collector. So Zacchaeus wants to see. And more particularly, Jesus wants to see him. Excuse me, Zacchaeus wants to see him. He's short. He's not going to be the point guard for any basketball team in the NBA playoffs. He's short, I tell you. So he has to go to a sycamore tree, fig tree, 
Go to the top, and there he sees Jesus. Ah, here comes Jesus. Jesus sees him up on the sycamore tree and says, Zach, you got to come down from there. I'm having din-din at your house. In the ancient world, and even today, hospitality is not something nice. It's a sacred duty. If I'm wandering in the desert and I come upon a Bedouin tent, even today in Israel, and I'm hungry or I need shelter, the occupants of that tent are obligated by custom to give me lodging and to give me food. Zacchaeus knew that. Jesus asks for it. Zacchaeus says, I'm coming down. You're coming to my place. And then something absolutely spectacular, absolutely unanticipated, absolutely transformational occurs. In that dinner setting, Zacchaeus suddenly stands up and he says, Lord, half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor. Wow. And the other half I'm going to take to make fourfold restitution to anyone whom I have defrauded. Why four? Why not just, I'll pay it back? Or why not double? What's going on with four? This is where we sometimes miss some of the details of the stories that are so incredibly familiar to us. According to Jewish law, if you defrauded somebody of something and you wanted to make it good again, you wanted to enact restitution, you paid that person six-fifths the value of what you had wrongly taken. So let's assume that I arrived early at the church today and I saw those wonderful music in, musical instruments. And as a trombonist, a former trombonist in a symphony orchestra, I saw your trombonist back there and my eyes were filled with envy. I didn't say lust, I said envy. And I saw that trombone up there. What if I took that trombone and I took it back with me to Fulton? Later in the day, I said to myself, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? Jim Hill, how do I make this right? He would say, you bring that trombone back and you pay a penalty of 120%. Six-fifths the value of the trombone. And we'll call it square. Everything is, everything's been taken care of. Everything's right again. According to Jewish law, if you could not return the item that you had stolen, you had to pay double restitution. Go back to the trombone again. I took the trombone over to First Presbyterian Church here in town, where I am on the staff as theologian in residence, and those Presbyterians melted it down, I tell you, and God only knows what brass idol they will have made over there on Madison Street. But I still come to my senses and I call Jim and I say, Jim, I don't know what came over me. I want to make this right, but I can't bring the trombone back. He says, aha, according to Jewish law, you owe us double the value of the trombone. If what you had stolen 
was stolen by violent means, only then did you need to make fourfold restitution. So let's assume I came, I saw the trombone, Jim was here, I took out my Presbyterian blackjack that I keep in my back pocket in case I encounter any unruly Baptists in my day-to-day proceedings, and I whack Jim on the head, and I leave him lying at the front of the sanctuary, and I take the trombone, only then would I have to make fourfold restitution. Is the point of the story clear according to Jewish law? All Zacchaeus had to do was to pay six-fifths, right? Everything's square. He went beyond that. Not even to double, to quadruple. To anyone whom I have defrauded, I will make fourfold restitution. In other words, so much was the person, so much was the story, so much was the salvation and inclusion and acceptance of Jesus. At the center now of Zacchaeus' life, he went far beyond what was legally required. So central was Jesus in his life story. Zacchaeus was, he was a changed man. He had been transformed by that encounter with the Nazarene. As have us. You know, in 2014, there's a whole bunch of stories besides the story of Jesus, besides the person of Jesus that shout out at us to make those stories a central part of our life. I was out of town last week at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., attending a seminar. When I got back, I had to do some grocery shopping because I opened the refrigerator and nothing was there. I was waiting in the long checkout line. Why is it always a long checkout line at Walmart? I saw magazines there on the, on the stand beside the register, and, so I, and I realized something very significant, that my life would have cosmic meaning and joy if I simply used the right aftershave, DKNY, if I drove the right car, had the right tie, voted for the right politician, ate the juiciest steak, my life would somehow have purpose and meaning. Baloney, I use that DKNY aftershave. It's gotten me nothing. So it promises fulfillment, but it delivers fragmentation. It promises wholeness and value and meaning, but it doesn't deliver. Think of the voices that shout out at you and me. You gotta be rich. You gotta be rich. Enough is always a little more than I've ever had. Think about that. Enough is always a little more than I've ever had. Or callousness shouts out at us forgiveness, mercy, kindness. That's for wimps. Let's go with revenge. Let's go with judgment. Let's go with payback, right? Put those in your life, and that'll really make your life meaningful. Or prejudice will yell out to us, if it's different, then it's really inferior. I like this one. Allow women to make cookies 
for receptions after worship, but don't give them any leadership roles in the church. And for sure, don't ever ordain them for God's sake. So sexism, in a way, will also reach out to us and say, women are decorative playthings, please treat them as such, and your life will have meaning. Some women subscribe to that erroneous notion of fulfillment as well. All these stories, they shout out at us. Make us a part of your life story, and your story is going to have meaning and value and purpose and fulfillment. And yet, when we, when we think about it really hard, we know these don't work. They know what they promise, they don't deliver. But they shout out at us. And they shout out at us incessantly, it would seem especially in our particular American culture. It's kind of like the little dog that I saw on TV. I had to be probably in junior high or high school. And I was watching a baseball game. Sorry it wasn't the St. Louis Cardinals. Okay, yeah, yeah. To, to err is human, to forgive is divine. It was the Yankees. Sorry. Oh, I know, I'm in trouble. Where's the nearest door? Um, a little dog trotted out onto the field at Yankee Stadium and he sat down on third base. And people started yelling at the dog. Steal home! <laughs> Bite the umpire! Please, oh please, take the pitcher's place. But the dog didn't move. In that cacophony of voices, there wasn't a dominant enough voice to move the dog to action. I remember the announcer was Joe Gargiola. Remember that name? Joe Gargiola. He said the dog could not hear a voice sufficient to cause it to move. And finally the groundskeepers came out and picked up the poor little dog and carted him off the field. So the question for you and me is, is there a voice, is there a story that's dominant enough to move us in the midst of all the voices that shout out at us? I think there is. It's the story of a baby born in a manger out back because there was no room in the inn. It's the story of a rabbi who said, love God and love your neighbor. And be loving enough even to forgive your enemies and even to excuse those people who persecute you. It's the story of a person willing to go to a cruel place, Golgotha, and hang on a Roman instrument of execution called the cross, and to suffer and bleed and die for you and me. It's the story also of an empty tomb. It's the story of hope over despair, of love winning out over hate, of peacefulness winning out over violence. It's the story of Jesus. The story of the same person that encountered Zacchaeus in Jericho 2,000 years ago, and the story of the same person who reaches out to you and me to encounter us 
in the year 2014. It's the story of Jesus of Nazareth. As the martyred German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer killed by the Nazis in 1939 for saying, the only Fuhrer I have, the only Lord I have is Jesus. As Bonhoeffer once put it, Jesus is the person for others who sees in serving others and ministering to those who need it the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate meaning, the ultimate purpose of life. It's the story of Jesus. And so my hope for me, my hope for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for you, is that Jesus Christ might ever be at the center of your life so you might get your story together. You might get your story together. Amen.